Okay, I'm going to be speaking on, I always feel like I'm so close to everybody, especially Daniel. <laughs> I love him, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> okay, so if I step back, this just helps me. I am an, an introvert by nature. It doesn't mean I don't like people. It just means I like my space. So if you've noticed, my second son is like me. My first son is, I, we don't know who he's like. He is his own being. He just likes to be around everybody. Anyways, so tonight I'm going to do an overview of Song of Solomon, which is technically impossible to do in 45 minutes to an hour, even an hour and a half. It's just like, it's a joke. If you've ever read, studied, looked at the Song of Solomon. So I'm going to do my best to give you some just broad themes throughout the book. Mostly what I'm wanting to do is to provoke you to study it to read it, to sing it, to get to know Jesus in it, his thoughts, his emotions, his plans for us. It's transformed my heart and my prayer that it would be, that it would transform yours. Um, and then what we don't go through this week, some of it we're going to look at next week. There'll be a part two in one of the morning classes, just a heads up. So real quick, um, you can break the Song of Solomon. How many people have actually read it? How many people have studied it? Okay, a little bit less. I've I read it. I mean, we all read it in high school, right? Like, well, at least everybody read it, and we're just like, we snickered. Like, you know, we just laughed, and we're like, what in the world is this book? I mean, I got saved when I was four, so obviously we were just flipping through the books of the Bible. So we're all like, like, I went to a Christian, private Christian school. So anyways. This book was just not something that was taught. I did not learn about this book until I was 19 years old, and I moved to IHOP. And that's, this is, I guess, I just realized, I'm like, I guess this is something they study. So I started studying it, and I'm very grateful. Anyways, you can break the book down into two parts, and it's really helpful. It's the first four chapters and the last four chapters. It's eight chapters. So chapters one through four is a chunk. Chapters four through eight is a chunk. It's not perfect science. And one thing is, when you look at this book, you need to treat it like you do a song. How many times have, have you looked at the lyrics of a song? And it's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, bridge, verse. Does it make sense if you try to read it like a book? No. So there is a natural progression to this book, but also it's a song. So treat it like a song, just like you would the Psalms. There's some dancing throughout. Not everything is supposed to be straightforward. It has poetic language. It has flowery language. It has very flowery and distinct imagery. And there's meaning behind it. Just like when people write a song, they're saying certain words, but they're pointing to a, the meaning of what they're saying, if that makes sense. So I just want to give you, because sometimes we are literal thinkers and we want it to just be black and white. And then this book is a little bit more work. It's more of a mystery, and you're digging things out and searching it out and discovering what it means. So the first four chapters are really about um, the bride. That's how we're going to treat it right now is just, let me say this before I do the four chapter breakdown, but you can look at the Song of Solomon various ways. Obviously, we people know that. It, the ultimate highest, I would say, way to view it is Jesus and Israel. And all. It, it's all equal, maybe not highest. And then also you can view it Jesus and each individual believer. Or you can view it as a man and a woman. There's 
an, a literal interpretation for that. We are just looking tonight at Jesus and an individual believer. That's how I'm going to look at it, just so you know the way that I'm approaching it. So um, the first four chapters can be looked at as the bride, the, the believer discovering that they are Jesus's inheritance. They're discovering the joy of, of how Jesus feels about him. And then the, the next four chapters are the joy of running with him in ministry, discovering what it means to be his. The first four chapters, again, it's more about she's discovering everything he feels about her, if that makes sense. It's all about being, um, he is my inheritance. Like there's a progression in the book where she starts to change how she's talking about him because she's starting to discover, oh, it's not just about everything Jesus can give me. It's actually, I belong to him. So that's what happens in chapters four through eight. There's a switch to where she realized, oh, this is really about my whole life being a bond servant and being him and being being his and being in partnership with him. So that's just kind of a little bit of a breakdown of the book. Um, the first verse is the one of the key verses. We'll just read it real quick. Or let's read the first uh, four verses. It says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. It says, may he, I have a different translation. I have... Um, NASB, so just go with me if you have different one. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. This is kind of obviously the starting of the book, and it's one of the crux of the cry of her heart. She cries out. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And what we're supposed to picture is not Jesus' mouth. We're supposed to, uh, this is about the kisses of his word. The kisses of his mouth means he's already kissed. There's something already active. It's the word coming forth from him that touches our hearts. And we've all felt that at times when you're reading the Bible, when somebody says something, when he says something to you, when it moves your heart and your heart moves and there's emotions and his word comes alive, that is the kisses of his word. Years ago, I had this uh, picture, because I don't know if you're like me, uh, often I feel like, uh, I think I said this when I spoke last week, but often I think we feel like we're always saying, Jesus, come, Jesus, come, Jesus, come, and he's not we're coming, and, we're th and we feel like we have to convince him, like, I'll just pray more, I'll just do more, like, you know, does anybody else feel that? I'll just do better, I'll just do it better, like, there's always this sometimes I, I call it a peripheral accusation. It's not always in your face. There's always this like little accusation over here going, you're not doing good enough. You're still not doing good enough. And that's never him. But I had this picture uh, years ago when I was praying in the prayer room. Um, I've been at IHOP for 18 years. So I, I don't remember what year it was, but I was sitting in the prayer room and I had this picture. And in the picture, I'm I'm standing in the throne room, but I'm hiding behind a pillar because I'm just not sure yet if he wants me to run up. I mean, I know Romans approach the throne of grace with bold, or Hebrews. I am not a chapter and verse person, so don't be offended if I quote the wrong. And if you know it, you're like, I know the verse better than she does. That's awesome. <laughs> Props to you. I sometimes botch verses, and I'm fine with it, okay? So I totally know I'm supposed to approach the throne of grace 
with boldness, but I'm timid. So in this picture, I'm glancing, going like, can I run up? Is it okay? I'm, but I'm feeling that insecurity. Like we do, we just feel that like in our hearts. And, but I'm looking at the father and the son and I see the son sitting next to the right hand of the father and he is like a man full of zeal and passion. He's sitting there, not passive. We think sometimes he's just sitting there like, oh, okay, everything's happening. I mean, he was sitting there like a lion ready to pounce from his throne, so full of so much desire and passion. And he was looking at his father. I always do this wrong. If he's sitting at the father's right hand, then he's looking, he's looking at his father and he's going, Father, I desire. And he's quoting John 17 in this little picture I had. Father, I desire that she would be with me. Father, let me, like that ache, he, Nobody, like Aaron said, nobody's waited for their wedding longer than Jesus. He's aching and desiring, and we sometimes think, he's so passive, why doesn't he kiss me? And I understand there's delays, but there's so many other things. It's not because he's passive, though. It has nothing to do with his passivity. He is not passive. He was so full of emotion, and the father just looks at him and smiles and goes, she hasn't asked yet. And I, I, in general, I know there's, there's so many believers asking, but it was a little specific story thing for me going, Jess, ask. Ask, but ask with the expectation that he's aching. The reason I'm aching, how many of us ache to be loved? Like you have that deep gnawing ache to be loved and known. You could be married with three kids, like me. I still have that ache. The marriage doesn't touch it. It touches it a little bit, but it does not I, I touch that deep place. Even in my husband's heart, when he's in pain, uh, all of me wants to get in and touch his heart. I can't. I can only just hug him and say words. Only the Holy Spirit, the Lord, can get into that deep place and that's what he's aching to do in all of us but it's the most vulnerable thing he's waiting for us with confidence to say come and kiss my heart with the kisses of your word and then believe with boldness that he's actually going to do it the thing is it looks a lot more simple than we think sometimes I'm a very simple person with the Lord meaning I don't have a lot of dreams and visions and all the like some people do, and that's awesome. I am very simple. He talks to me very simply. I could almost miss it. But after all these years, he has answered that prayer. And I remember I didn't want to be stuck behind that pillar. Like, that's not what I wanted to say. So I, I had that picture, and then years later, I remembered that picture. And instead of being hidden behind the pillar, I was standing next to him shoulder to shoulder. I wasn't even standing in front of him. I was standing next to him and we were looking down on the earth and it was like partnership. Like, what are we going to do now? That's what he's longing for. He's longing for believers who are so confident in love with him that they can partner with him and ask him questions and intercede with him. Not just people that he says, hey, do this and we do that. That's not the height of what he desires. The height of what he desires is a partnership, a friendship, that it takes receiving and believing. I have, like I said, been in the ministry, in, been in Kansas City at the House of Prayer for 18 years. 
you never graduate receiving his delight and his affection ever. That is the crux of mature believer Christianity, I believe, is being able to just simply receive his delight and his affection. And that's what she's crying out for in this first verse. I think it's the cry that I, I desire to have every day all of my life is just enjoy me, just delight in me. It's like my little four-year-old who just assumes I always have something special for him, always. You have something special for me? Every time I leave the house and then I drive, in our drive into our garage in Kansas City and park, he flies out of the door, comes and runs up to the van, and he goes, do you have something special for me? Like every time. And usually I actually do. I keep all these things in my purse because I want, to, I want him to keep asking. I want him to think, you have something for me, don't you? And I'm, it was a few months ago where the Lord reminded me, he goes, why don't you ask me the same thing? Jess, I have things for you. It's not all about working. Working comes from receiving his love. The next thing that she says is, draw me away, which she's saying, bring me really close to you, so close that we're one. I want to feel that we are one. How? If you're a Christian, you're one with Christ. How many people feel like that? Not, yeah, not many. But that is what he wants. He wants us to feel one. And then she says, and let us run together. She wants to run in ministry. She wants to run and do all these glorious works. But what's happened so often in the church, I've done it myself, and I think we've all witnessed it in different I think you can especially witness it sometimes in the missions world. When I say missions, I also mean prayer movement. They're one in my head because I am a missionary. I just happen to pray more than I'm actually out doing things sometimes. But I've seen so many people, even in the prayer room, work so hard and stop receiving. Receiving is not a seasonal thing. It's not. It's not, oh, I did that. I did that time where I sat. No, it is a lifelong thing. And yeah, I, I, ha I have a husband and three kids, and we are in a different country working and doing ministry. I don't sit very much. I mean, I don't sit very much in life anyways. But to sit with my Bible, I don't do very much right now. So for me, it's learning to receive on the go when I'm helping my kids or when I'm going to the bathroom and I have a minute or when something, I just say, enjoy me now. Right now, do you have something special for me? That can actually be the key to our lives and the power thing. And that's really, that's her heart cry at the beginning. And in the whole book is this journey of how she matures in love. And the way you really, to boil it down, I'm going to keep saying this all night. One of the greatest ways, only way to mature in love is by receiving. It's not head knowledge. We have a lot of knowledge, and actually, I've been there before. I was in my 20s, I was one of those ones, like it says in Romans, knowledge pu it puffs up, but love edifies. H how many have been there? A little bit of knowledge, and you get like a little, oh, I know this and this and this. Like, we all do that in some way. We're just proud humans. But I want the love that edifies. That's the, the, the desire of my heart. So she goes on this journey. And first she discovers 
that she's dark but lovely. It says that in verse um, 8, or sorry, 5. We are going to go through this next week in detail, so I'm not going to hit it right now. But one thing she says in this portion is she says, because I'm going to build upon this as we go throughout the book, is she says, do not stare at me. She's like, I want you, Jesus. I want to learn from you. And she's also, I think she, I think twofold, she's talking to the believers right here. She's saying, don't stare at me, don't look at me. She doesn't, it's the vulnerability thing. She said, because I'm dark. She's been laboring and working really hard. It says she's been laboring. I'm not going to give you, I don't have the time to give you what everything means, so I just kind of need you to take my word for it and then go study on your own. And if you don't agree with me later, that's absolutely fine. And just FYI, Mike Bickle has 24 sessions on this online for free, videos, everything. I've actually studied it with a group of girls where we went through all of it, not using his notes, and we, stake, we still ended up with his conclusions. So just an FYI, I have studied it on my own, gone through the commentaries, and still went like, yeah, I agree with him on 95% of it. So just an FYI. So if I just blurt out, this means that, just go with me, then I really encourage you, please study it on your own. So basically, in this part, she's realizing she's hungry. She's hungry for more of the Lord, but she's overworked. She's tired. She's worked to please people, and she hasn't taken care of her own heart. It says, my own garden I've neglected. So she's feeling that ache, and there's shame there. There's a shame of, I haven't done my own part. Like, I've taken care of everybody else. And so she says, don't look at me. And then she asks him, like you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? And where do you make it lay down at noon? How many know noon is like the hottest hour of the day? And you're only going to get a sheep to lay down at noon if what? They're full and fed. So she's watching going, you have sheep that rest in the heat of the day when they're late. Like that's hard to do. She's going, I want to, how do you do that? Where do you do that? And she wants to become one of those. How many people, I w think of it for my own life, I want to be in the heat of pressure, whether that would be suffering, whether that would be blessing, whether that would be whatever, and I want to be full of Jesus. In the midst of crisis, in the midst of blessing, in the midst of hard labor work, I want to be full of him. And that's what she's crying out for. And she's, and he tells her, and I love his response. She's saying, don't look at me. And he goes, oh, fairest among women. His responses in this book don't add up in our brains. We want him to say, yep, you're right. You made bad choices. So here, do this. Does that, like, we're just so used to that. So he says, oh, fairest among women. Um, let me look at this page. Sorry. Well, it says, he, he, I can't find it in this translation because it says it. Oh, that's because the pages are stuck together. See, <laughs> this is what happens when you have kids. There's like, or not, I mean, there's just food or something. <laughs> he goes, go forth and follow the, in the, the young ones and stay by the shepherds, which is really just saying stay in the ministry, stay near the shepherds, stay near your church, don't go off by yourself. 
that's not wisdom. It's basically summarizing what he's saying. And so she goes into this season of sitting, like sitting under the apple tree. Song of Solomon 2, it says, I sat down in his shade with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. This is a time where she is just like other people say, eating of the benefits of the cross. I like to view it this way too. When you think about an apple tree, it says right here in verse um, verse 3, it says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved. She's talking to Jesus. And also, FYI, when you read this book, sometimes different um, publishers put different headers, like they say, Jesus is talking, or the Shulamite, which the Shulamite is the bride or the believer. They're wrong sometimes on who's speaking. So study it out and make sure because otherwise it can get kind of tricky. That makes sense. Mine doesn't do that, so, well, it does a little bit. So I'm just saying it's helpful to figure out who's talking. So she's talking about Jesus and says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved. I like to think about it like this. The trees of the forest, at least the forests that I have been in and the forests I've heard about in Israel, their trees are very tall, big, tall trees. How much shade does a really big, tall tree give? Not much. It's a long, skinny, like, you know, maybe it fluffs up where there's some branches. But then you picture an apple tree. Has anybody ever seen an apple tree? It's this big, round, full tree. It goes big, round, and full. The shade of an apple tree is so much bigger than the trees of the forest. There's way more shade, like a pine tree. And, like, yeah, some of the branches, but still, like, if it's really tall and there's like you're trying to hide under this itty bitty shade. So part of the picture is he has lots of shade. Another picture is the trees of the forest are super tall. They don't look like you just want to come curl up underneath their branches, do they? But an apple tree is so approachable. It's so inviting. It makes you want to come pick a piece of fruit. You don't do that to a huge tree in this great big forest. Does that make sense? That's part of the imagery that the author is trying to say is, my beloved is approachable, he's safe, there's lots of shade, I can sit down. It's a peaceful, restful place. And often in the Old Testament, wood trees speak about the humanity like of Christ and humanity in general. Like you've heard the Zechariah, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. There's just these imageries about Jesus and his humanity in reference to wood. So that's what she's saying in this part. She's discovering how beautiful he is. And this part, I mean, everybody wishes we could just stay in this part. Like just sit and receive in this way. Like I said, we're always receiving. But receive specifically in this season where it's really sweet. We kind of call it the honeymoon season where it's just really sweet. Like when I first moved to Kansas City, it was just so easy. And fun, easy in a, you know, easy in a human way. Nothing's truly easy. We're humans. Life's hard sometimes. But easy in the sense that it would, uh, there was that sweetness with the Lord. I would read this book and not get it, but eventually it started to work. A funny thing, I would actually read Song of Solomon just because I was like, I think that's what you do here. And then I would switch to the life of David because I was like, at least this is entertaining. Like, <laughs> there's a story, there's intense things, there's a battle. Like, I'm more of a war movie, World War II 
type of person. I might not look like it, but I am. So anyways, but this book has great stuff too. So she's sitting in this season of receiving, and that's why I said it's like the honeymoon season, and it there is a, s a time when it changes, not because he's like wants to stop. It's because he wants us to run with him more. He's answering her prayer. He's, she said, draw me away and let us run together. So there's this part in the storyline of Song of Solomon where all of a sudden she hears the voice of my beloved in chapter at the end of chapter two, and it says he comes leaping up on the mountain, skipping on the hills, and she's still in her comfortable place resting, and he comes up to her and he says, rise up, my love, come away, come away with me. And this is what some term as challenging the comfort zone. How many place, times have you been in a season with the Lord or in ministry, you're like comfortable, and then and an invitation comes through the Lord or through men, and you go, this is really sweet. Why would he do that? Like that doesn't even make sense why he would call me to arise. And then he says to her, let me see your face and let me hear your voice. I think this part is so important because letting him see our face is so vulnerable. So my husband and I started, uh, we've been married six years, just to encourage single ladies. I did not start dating until I was 30. I mean, I dated, but I didn't date my husband until I was 30. So I didn't get married until I was 31, I mean, which is young for some, but it's worth waiting for. Um, so Aaron would do this thing where we'd sit down at dinner when we were dating and engaged, and he would just smile and stare. And I was like, I, could, I was like, he's not going to talk right now, is he? And I'm like, shoo. Then you're thinking, okay, there's no food. Like, we've ordered, but they haven't brought it yet. There's no bread. There's nothing for me to get distracted by, you know? Like, we kind of put, you know, on a date, it's good. You put our phones away. So it's just so vulnerable. And I, at first I was like, are you going to stop? And he's like, nope. <laughs> I was like, okay, really? And so then it became kind of this game to see how long could I actually handle it. He was confident in his affection. I receiving it was a different story. I was like, oh boy, this is so hard. But at the same time, all of me has been craving this for years. That's the thing I want is somebody to have that delight in their eyes and have it just for me. Where somebody's going, I'm just choosing you. But it's so vulnerable. It's actually the thing we want the most and hate the most. It is vulnerable. Like I had a, uh, a friend years ago, Jennifer Roberts, asked me, what are you so excited about and nervous about? And I was like kind of the same thing. Like I'm so excited to be known and I'm terrified to be known because being vulnerable is terrifying. And she was like, absolutely. It's the hardest thing about marriage and relationship is trusting and being vulnerable. And that's what he's delighting in because he's saying let me see your face and I, he has that burning gaze like Aaron's gaze was intense but nothing compared to that man up there nothing I mean his eyes are eyes of fire when he sets his gaze it's really intense so he says let me see your face and hear your voice and it she actually in this part she turns him away she doesn't arise it's not because of rebellion it's because of immaturity. And honestly, I've turned him away at different times. I didn't know I did it. It's like you look back later, six months. Sometimes I think we know we do are doing it, but we're just like, but I'm scared. 
So basically, she's more afraid of arising and more afraid of the fears and the things and the shadows, although she's more afraid of her own weaknesses, everything, than she fears him. Does that make sense? She's, more, she's looking at all these things more than she's looking at him and his strength. And that, that's a progression that we all grow in. So she actually tells him to turn away. And so he goes leaping and skipping on the hills. And when it uh, pictures him like a, have you guys ever seen a gazelle jump? They are like the bounciest little happy things. Thing. It means it's effortless for him. He's leaping and skipping on the things that she's terrified of. That's part of the point of what he's saying. He's like, hello, look how easy it is for me up here. It's definitely harder for us, but he's just saying, you can trust me. The whole thing about our relationship with the Lord is, can we, do you trust him? Really, at the end of the day, it's do you trust he's really as good and as kind no matter the circumstances, do we trust that he's still good? And we can absolutely trust him. That's the thing when I talk to my four-year-old, David, when he feels like, okay, I'm not making the right choice, I say, David, look at my eyes. Let me see your face. I have a little song I sing to them. And he still, like, dodges me, and he's looking like this. And I'm trying to get him, and I say, David, do you trust me? And he'll usually go, I'm trying I'm trying, Mom, because at the end of the day, that's not it. It's, yes, I want him to obey me, but I want him to obey me because he trusts me, because he trusts that I'm not perfect, but he trusts me. Like, that's my mom. She takes really good care of me. It's the same with the Lord. He's going, look at me. Look at my eyes. Can you trust me? And part of our heart needs to be honest. We go, no, actually, I don't. That's what he's trying to expose is those places where we go, I don't trust you because of this, this, and this. 